Welcome to the Governance Podcast, hosted by the Centre for the Study of Governance in Society here at King's College London. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. One of the themes that we've been examining here at the CSGS is that of ecological security, and in particular, the challenge of climate change governance. I'm delighted, therefore, to have with me today one of the world's leading experts on climate change and the challenges it presents to various governance systems. Professor Michael Hume is Professor of Human Geography at the University of Cambridge, and he's the author of numerous works, notably Why We Disagree About Climate Change with Cambridge University Press in 2009, and most recently, the very simply entitled Climate Change, published by Routledge uh, earlier this year. So Mike, it's great to have you with us here at the centre. I wonder if we could start off with you just uh, giving a bit of an indication of the motivation for the new book, Climate Change. Hmm. Well, the new book is part of a series that Routledge published on key ideas in geography. It's been going about 12 or 15 years. Uh, it's a relatively occasional series, so it takes a few big themes in geography, geographical thought like nature, place, cities, and the editor series approached me and said, look, we think climate change is a sufficiently weighty idea for this to be tackled in the key ideas and geography series. And, and I seemed to fit the bill as someone who could look across the sweep of thinking behind climate change as it's emerged in, in recent years in particular. And so and I, I was keen to give this a go, really, because it just gave me a platform to think at a meta level uh, about climate change as an idea, not necessarily as a problem to be solved, but to reflect on the different ways in which both historically, culturally, politically, ethically, scientifically, uh, this idea of climate change has come to be actually now very much in the foreground, of course, of our contemporary world. So it was a great opportunity to bring a lot of my thinking together in one volume. Well, when, when I read the book, um, as I did um, a couple of months ago now, actually, what struck me was the parallel between the way it's set out, where you contrast sort of scientific approaches to climate change with approaches with, with, that you describe as being beyond science, um, to some of the arguments from your previous book, why we disagree about climate change. And a key theme of that book really was this idea taken from cultural theory that you can't really understand the disagreements about climate change and what to do about it without understanding the fact that people view it through different cultural lenses and that a sort of robust approach to the problem requires that we have this sort of cultural pluralism reflected in the way that we discuss the, the topic. So could you speak a little bit more about that and how your previous work in this area has informed this new, this new volume? Yeah, so the uh, original book, Why We Disagree About Climate Change, was very much inspired by my experiences working within a research centre of academics from different disciplines, sciences, engineering, economics, social science, organised in order to do new innovative research around climate change and offer, I think, the, the rubric we had in the Tyndall Centre was to produce sustainable solutions for climate change. And in a sense, we, we, we all subscribed to, to that ambition. And yet the, the interesting thing that I observed over a number of years is that actually if we sat down privately or informally in the pub or in the bar or over a meal, we actually ended up finding, having quite different views about what constitutes a solution to climate change. We sort of rhetorically would present externally, of course, we're all working together, but we all came at this question of climate change with different presumptions, assumptions, ideologies, values, uh, moralities, and so on. And I wanted to, to, to put these foreground these in, in, in the book. And cultural theory, inspired by Mary Douglas, particularly the idea that one might group uh, individuals in societies into these four categories of hierarchs, individualists, egalitarians, and fatalists. This, this idea of cultural theory just became, at the very least, a useful heuristic for me to explore this. Um, and it's not a c case then, and this again is something that I've 
wrote about back then and certainly is inspired my latest book, it's not just a case of getting everybody to subscribe to a particular reading of the science uh, behind climate change, as though somehow just that educational pedagogic achievement would somehow eradicate all these differences in how we think about ourselves in the world. No, of course not. We might take science seriously. All of us might, you know, a hierarch and an individualist might very well take science seriously. But what that science about climate change is meaning to them in terms of political action in the world could be very, very different. Not because they somehow are nefarious agents or they are a priori skeptical of the science, although clearly some people are skeptical of science, but you can take the science, as it were, at face value and still do different things with it, in my view, quite rationally and reasonably, according to those prior commitments. And, and cultural theory helps, at least, as I say, heuristically to, to, to provide a structure to understand that. And I think that the reason why this, to me, is so important and how I partly structure this new book around this whole line of thinking too, is that it actually creates more spaces for political agonism in a society, rather than, as it were, everybody being coerced into thinking about this problem in a singular, universal or absolutist way. And to me, that's almost the opposite of politics. Politics needs to have agonism if it actually is to be at all creative in our society. So, I mean, I mean, I take the point very much there that data or science never speak for themselves, that they can be interpreted in different ways and that creative solutions to any kind of problem really need different interpretations or different lenses to come to bear upon it. But if you think of the, the recent, the COP26 uh, summit that we've just had the last couple of weeks or so, um, there's very much a strong emphasis there on numbers, um, perhaps not recognising that they can be interpreted in different ways. How do you read that? How do you read what has happened at the, the COP26 summit through the lens that you bring in this, this book and the previous book? So, so I think the, uh, the interesting thing is about how numbers work <laughs> in political and public public discourse. I mean, numbers are, of course, integral to science and, and actually numbers are integral to understanding climate. I mean, I got into climate change actually because I was fascinated with numbers. I, I used to study, you know, the, the, the weather and I used to try to measure the weather um, by by reading my thermometer and I like playing around with numbers and statistics. So, so in a way, numbers are absolutely central to climate science, science in general. But numbers have a different discursive feel to them when they enter into public spaces and they can be very quickly become solidified and rarefied in a way that scientists wouldn't very often recognize because we always recognize that numbers are provisional and uh, got uncertainties scattered around them. But numbers have become, and I, I think in a, an unhelpful way, at the very center of our political thinking and certainly actually also around some of our civic campaigning around climate change. It's all about numbers. It's about you know 1.5 to stay alive. It's about net zero by, by 2025. And if it's not by 2025 net zero, then it's all over, we're finished. And, and that reification of numbers, I find is deeply unhelpful. It closes down spaces where actually different political arguments can be given equal weight and space to be at least heard. Of course, you know, Political arguments are always arguments about something, um, but they shouldn't be arguments about is the number going to be achieved or is it not going to be achieved? It should be about forms of intervention that will bring about a particular set of goods or carry a particular set of risks. And some of the rhetoric around the cops has become increasingly just, I mean, I think in the last, well, certainly this one at Glasgow was very much focused around getting the numbers as it were, lined up in a, in a row <laughs> so that success could be claimed, um, as though it's somehow all about the numbers. Uh, so numbers can, be, can mask these underlying political disagreements. Um, and, and so uh, one saw 
the rather astonishing sight, in my view, at least at Glasgow, of the British chair of the con conference, Sharma, castigating the Indian prime minister for offering something actually quite remarkable in, in, in the history of climate politics, that India would, would, would set itself a net zero target, but by only 2070. Hmm. And, and saying, well, 2070 is way, way too late. You're not playing the game. You're, 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 you're breaking ranks from, from the community of nations. But it was all about the number being wrong rather than actually recognizing the politics behind why Modi made that statement. And if you understand anything at all about India, you understand exactly why he he offered a, a, a number way, way, way down the track, because there are very other important, significant pressing issues that India faces beyond just simply eradicating coal uh, within the next five, 10, tw 20 years. So numbers mask genuine and important scientific conflict and contest that needs, I think, to be foregrounded and not hidden behind numbers. So, I mean, do politicians like to use numbers because they do mask those underlying conflicts? Or do you think the fact that numbers have become so important in these debates reflects the dominance of a particular sort of cultural frame in the way that we think about the climate change problem? Or mm. are those two things maybe related in some way? I think they're related. Both both of them, we can see them at work. I, I, I remember in the run-up to the Copenhagen Climate Summit back in 2009, there was a big science congress in, in Copenhagen in, in, in Denmark. And the then uh, Danish environment minister, who's going to be chairing the subsequent conference a few months later, he, he, he made this speech to the assembled ranks of hundreds of scientists from around the world saying, what he wanted from this Congress before the politics of Copenhagen was a number. He wanted a number, not a range of numbers, not a number with uncertainty. Just give me a number that I can work with. Because politicians, you know, they feel then that they have the, uh, the non-negotiable authority of science behind them to go into a negotiation. They can say, well, I can't negotiate on this number because science has told me what the number is. If the number, rather than being two degrees, had been well, somewhere between 1.5 and 2.5 is fine. The, 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 the politician would feel that they didn't have so much power in that negotiation than if they can play a precise number of two. So I, I think there's something here for sure about how politicians use science more generally, but numbers in particular, in order to, as it were, offer a particular trump card in, in any political political negotiation. But then we also see a wider narrative that I think, certainly we saw this in Glasgow and in the UK at the moment and some other countries, that um, civic protest movements have created a cultural environment, a discursive cultural environment around climate change that again plays to numbers. Um, Extinction Rebellion uh, and Fridays for the Future with Greta Thunberg have used numbers very powerfully in their rhetoric to say that if you don't do this by a certain date, then our future has been sacrificed for your self-interest. And so numbers have, again, been used as a proxy, an authoritative proxy, actually, for what are fundamentally actually quite powerful ethical arguments. I mean, Thunberg's argument, you know, whatever you may think of it, has got a certain amount of credibility, which is about intergenerational ethics. Yeah. But the numbers get imported into that, and it then becomes a question about getting the numbers right. Um, so numbers have this, again, even in these cultural um, social movements, they, they can mask legitimate political claims um, behind this appearance of scientific objectivity mm. and non-negotiability. And again, they're always offered in this, this way that, well, we can't negotiate with a number, we can't negotiate with science, uh, which I think is a, can be very disingenuous. I mean, that feeds in quite nicely to the, the, the next point I was going to ask you about, which is you've written quite critically in the past about what you see as being the I guess the errors of climate deadlineism, as you've, you've, you've described it. And obviously we saw arguably some of that at the, the recent conference. 
Could you run through what you think are the problems with that sort of deadlineist kind of approach to climate change and, and where you think it may be leading us? Mm. Well, the, so there are some obvious difficulties with the idea of these deadlines. Um, I mean, the most obvious one, an intuitive one, is that we've had many of them <laughs> and we passed many of them mm -hmm. and the sky hasn't fallen. The world hasn't ended. Uh, actually, there are still opportunities to make policy choices about the future. So in a sense, you know, that's a very obvious problem with, with deadlines. They will come and they will go and there is always life on the other side of the deadline. So actually, in the end, what is the deadline pointing to? It, it, it isn't pointing to anything physical in the real physical world. It actually becomes a, a rhetorical ploy. So that's one obvious problem. The other problem with deadlines is that they, again, do place too much faith in scientific knowledge. They, in a way, they, you can trace back the origins of these numbers to particular scientific claims. And yet all these scientific claims, particularly about Earth system science, climate science and climate prediction, all of these claims are contingent, they're provisional, they're hedged with uncertainties or probabilities. But when they appear as a number, a deadline, all of that gets stripped away and all you're left with is, well, this is what's going to happen at this particular date. So it doesn't do justice, actually, to the contingency and the provisionality of scientific knowledge. And it seems to me that's that again can be disingenuous. Um, and I think a third problem with deadlines, partly linked to the first point I make that, that deadlines will always be exceeded, is what is the psychological effect of citizens, advocates, campaigners, we see this particularly amongst young people at the moment, who, as it were, mobilize around the number, around the deadline, with great passion and energy and hope and expectation that this deadlineism will deliver some political, decisive political act, which in the end, of course, is unrealistic. One cannot expect any particular conference, whether Glasgow or anywhere else, to sort of provide the once and for all definitive breakthrough that will ensure that the deadline is met. But when that deadline is not met, when politics doesn't change and the deadline is reached or passed, it can psychologically, it can seriously damage either people's faith in the science that they thought underlay the deadline and when the world doesn't fall in, well, what actually lay behind this deadline in the first place? Or when politics cannot do the impossible of meeting a deadline of eradicating coal, for example, in 10 years time, it leads to a cynicism about politics. Um, and it also creates this, this anxiety, particularly we see this amongst young people, that they, they genuinely believe that there is a cliff edge. They genuinely believe that something catastrophic just lies over the horizon and that they will fall into the chasm. So for all these reasons, that the psychology of deadlineism, I think can be if, at the very least debilitating at the very worst, actually quite destructive in terms of how people engage with political life in general and how they understand science as an enterprise. I'm, I'm going to come on to this a little bit more later on in the, in the conversation, I think, but you advocate what I would broadly describe as a sort of pragmatist or pluralist approach to climate change. What would you say to someone maybe who's pushing back on your previous point who might say that we know that these deadlines aren't literally deadlines in some you know, literal sense, but they might themselves be useful pragmatic devices to motivate some kind of action or awareness of the problem that if you didn't use the language of deadlines, people wouldn't be motivated in the same way. But how would you respond to that kind of argument that this is a kind of pragmatist attempt to deal with the issue? Hmm. I think they can carry that sort of pragmatic reality um, if they're understood and used 
in that way and they're not interpreted in a literal form. On the other hand, I still wonder even then whether using these, the idea of deadlines with numbers attached to them is in some sense trying to short circuit what actually should be a more open, deliberative political process. It's almost as though the number and the rhetoric is being used coercively in order to close down or to short circuit decision making. And actually, it's interesting. It's, I mean, there are, you know, there are numerical, certainly there are numerical targets in various other forms of public policy, you know, whether it's NHS waiting lists, whether it's the sustainable development goals. But they're very rarely used in the sense that something waits on the other side of the de of the failure to hit the deadline. I mean, yes, it's 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 a failure of policy if the NHS targets are not met. But it's not as though somehow if they're not met, the NHS falls I I into ruin. Uh, or equally, poverty. You know, yes, there are targets. Uh, uh, and even dates on those targets in the SDGs, for example. But, but, but the rhetoric is not being used that somehow if, if you don't get poverty down 50%, but only 30%, then it's all over, game up. It's this type of um, absolutism or binary thinking that you, you, know, you either succeed or you fail. And if, if you fail, then it's the end. It's, it's that component, I think, of the numbers and the deadlines that I see as not helpful. Um, but I recognize that numbers and targets can have a place in a much more pragmatic, open form of political advocacy. So maybe we could explore that a little bit more. I mean, you talk, I think, quite persuasively towards the end of the, the, the new book about the idea of seeing climate change as a predicament. So it's something that is not going to go away ever. It's not something that can ever be solved as such. It's rather a, a sort of permanent challenge which constantly raises uh, different sorts of questions that people may have to approach in different ways. And I read what you're saying there almost as it's a sort of opportunity to have a sort of creative dialogue across these multiple sort of cultural lenses, if you like. So could you say a little bit more about what it means to view climate change as a predicament and how would you see say a cop 26 which is informed by that kind of view unfolding differently to what what we've just witnessed mm. so that's a really interesting question um partly i use the idea of the predicament as a counterpoint to the problem solution frame that that has too easily dominated uh some of the discourse and argumentation about climate change and which is itself informed by a very mechanistic understanding of the planet, much as an engineer would would seek to repair an internal combustion engine. You know, the planet is simply a machine that's broken down and needs repair. Um, I, I, the idea of the predicament takes us away from that type of thinking, which I think is unhelpful. Mm. The predicament focuses on what is irresolvable in a particular situation. Um, it's not to say that there are not better or worse ways of dealing with a predicament or living through a predicament, and of course there are, but it's recognizing that at the end, you're not going to eradicate the problem entirely. You're going to have to find ways of coping and surviving, probably for a sustained long period of time, and that certainly I think is the case with climate change. And also the idea of the predicament plays, of course, very nicely into I think some of the the resources, the cultural resources that can be mobilized by humanities disciplines, for example, where ambiguity, tension, um, analogues of how other people have dealt with predicaments in narrative form um, are often foregrounded in, in creative in creative fiction. Uh, and and so it, it just opens a space for thinking about um, those types of stories. And actually, there's a um, a really nice uh, exploration of that in a in a book coming out very soon called Story Listening by Sarah Dillon and Claire Craig. And the power of or well, the importance of listening to stories 
in a policy, in a political process, because stories are as much a piece of evidence about how societies and how people think of themselves in societies as scientific facts might be. Yeah. So predicaments open up all of these windows, if you will, that deal much more appropriately with ambiguous, ambivalent, troubling, wicked type problems. How would, how would the COP in Glasgow have played out differently if that had been the dominant discourse rather than the deadline of net zero? That's a really interesting question to ask me. Um, I would like to think that, again, it would create space. Thinking climate change as a predicament would give space for people from different national cultural perspectives to foreground what climate change actually meant for them. And we did see that to some degree, I think, actually, in, in, in some of the activities around, around, around Glasgow. Um, so, for example, there was an opening poem uh, that was brought, and a, a poem is actually a, a nice way of, of decentering scientific knowledge and foregrounding uh, a, a much more emotional or personal reading of what a problem is. So I think, I, I, I think predicaments would have created more, more of those types of opportunities. Um, and it would also, I think, have avoided this, the, some of the performativity that we saw from political spokespeople or, or government leaders as it were, almost seeking to outbid each other, or my number's bigger than your number, or my deadline for net zero is shorter than your deadline for net zero. Again, which is inspired, of course, by the idea of numbers being part of the solution. Whereas predicaments um, would actually foreground the very difficult political choices and trade-offs that different world leaders face in their right. own jurisdictions. I mean, what Modi faces in yeah. India yeah. is a very different set of factors to yeah. weigh up whatever you may think of Modi. I mean, yeah. whether you think he's a skillful politician or, 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 or not, he, he generally does have a different set of constellations in front of him compared to Boris Johnson, compared yeah. to Joe Biden. And, and in a sense, seeing the, the multiple predicaments in that sense that world leaders have in their particular context, rather than thinking that we're all playing the same game, which is to bring the global planet to some safe landing, and, and, and whatever local little difficulties we have uh, just are subdued in, in sight of this greater cosmopolitan good, uh, seeing climate change itself inherently as a predicament I, I think would give greater recognition to these very, very different contexts in which which leaders, politicians, policymakers, and, and a whole variety of other uh, political actors find themselves in. Um, how you trade one interest against another, how you trade one good against another good, um, you know, recognizing, for example, that, that there are real trade-offs, for example, between biodiversity goals and climate change goals. Um, you know, there may be some synergies, but equally there are some dissynergies and trade-offs where you can't do everything at the same time to satisfy all these multiple goals. And that, in a way, is, is what a predicament is. You know, you have got two competing goods. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't achieve both of them. So yeah. let's be honest and face that and recognize that deliberately. How would you respond? I guess a concern that some people would have about that is... If you emphasize that there are these multiple trade-offs, and in a certain sense, I think many people would, would recognize that, that India is not in the same place. The way it weights its considerations may be different to people in the UK or in Germany. At a certain, in a certain sense, I think people would recognize that. But on the other hand, I think they might say, once you start to emphasize this kind of pluralism in the trade-offs, you then open the door to people who don't want to do anything about climate change at all. They, they, they just want to read it in a certain way, which says, well, you know, it just isn't worth it for us. 
to do anything about this. So you have this tension between, on the one hand, I know a concern that you have, which is that countries like India are almost being sort of disciplined by some universal standard. But on the other hand, if, if you don't have that standard, what is the motivation for people, you know, not to just say, well, you know, to us, it's not a problem. Mm. Well, it depends whether you actually do think there is some overarching universal standard mm. that either disciplines all nations or actually, as it filters down, should discipline each and every one of us. And I, I think, I mean, my reading actually of the world in which I see and inhabit and read is I'm not sure actually that there are such universal standards, or at least if there are, I'm not sure uh, other than, than the deities <laughs> who knows them. I mean, science sometimes would seek to usurp that sort of divine authority and, and um, oversight as to what everybody should buy into. But actually, if you look around, and this is partly back to cultural theory, you know, if, 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 if we look around empirically at how people think and reason and act in the world and, and the values and the standards that they foreground and treasure, people are different, mm. period. And you know, cultural theory is one way of grouping people according to those four different instincts, but there are other ways. Uh, you know, we can contrast the utilitarian as opposed to the, the, um, the deontological or the, the virtue ethicist. Um, these are, you know, these are serious, what do you call them, values, instincts, intuitions, commitments to the way in which we think about good and ethical decisions. And who's to say that, that everybody should become a utilitarian? Um, and actually, in a sense, we... we we probably, and again, cultural theory would argue this, we work better uh, as a society, as some sort of social entity, by recognizing that the utilitarian and the deontological and the virtue ethicist actually each bring something of, the to the table. And, and listening to those, respecting those, and arguing through, there's still got to be argumentation in the end about what you decide to do. There's got to be closure as well as an opening up. But but it's moving away from this idea that there is a universal standard, just like waiting to be discovered by science or pronounced by God. Uh, and, and again, we're back here to my reading of what constitutes a full and well-functioning politics mm. in any social organization. You know, I, mean, I often use the example of the, the small family units. You know, you, you've got maybe two adults and three children. They've got to decide where they're going to go on holiday. Well, everyone's got their own views about where they want to go on holiday. And there are different ways you can, you can deal with that conflict. That, that's a political conflict within a family. You know, the dominant adult could decide where they're going to go on holiday, and they could invoke all sorts of reasons why everyone's going to go there. Or... You could have a, a democratic vote, or before you have the vote, you could actually go through an open process of, well, why do you think, why do you think, and you then begin to understand why are people preferring Germany rather than Ireland, mm. and actually through that deliberative process, there might be some convergence within the family unit, or there might not, and if there isn't, there's still got to be some closure, so mm. then you've got to find, well, what are the rules of closure in this particular family? It still might be the dominant adult yeah. who has the casting vote, but it actually then might be another deliberative... So that's a useful an analogy, it seems to me, of, of, of recognizing both of the importance, well, first of all, the recognition that we are different, we think differently, and we have credible reasons why we think differently about things. We need to listen to each other in some sort of deliberative setting, but we also have to have, to have rules of closure. Otherwise, mm. we're just paralyzed. Um, so I, th I think this, to me, would, would be why I would not recognize the imposition of some universal standard or even uh, some claim that everybody has got to subscribe to that stopping climate change is the ultimate yeah. political good. Uh, there are counter-arguments to that that need to be heard and recognized. Well, these, I think, don't these tensions also play out when we think about um, power relationships that are operating here as well? So, you know, I mean, I think a very powerful argument that many people make um, is that 
if you don't uh, encourage dramatic action on climate change, you're sort of reinforcing a power dynamic which is privileging countries that have over the years emitted significant amounts of CO2 and that could be in some sense threatening people in other parts of the world. But then the flip side of that is if you create a new set of power relations where people impose from the centre um, a climate deadline or, or whatever it is, that may have detrimental impacts on people as well. So we've got power relations, whichever kind of set of decisions are made, how do we actually balance those kind of considerations? I mean, that, that seems to me a central issue here. Yes, it is. And one could argue that the machinery that has been set up, the transnational intergovernmental machinery that's been set up over 30 years is an attempt to try to provide that sort of deliberating space, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and then the annual meetings of the parties. So you could argue that that actually is the machinery here. Um, on the other hand, it, and, and maybe maybe the reason actually why we still are at the place we are here in 2021, given that we started this whole process back in 1992, is that actually we've been embarking on something that that we've got no idea whether it's achievable or not. I mean, this is this is a in, if you if you just take the headline goals of the UNF back in 1992, this is a project that humanity has never before embarked upon. Of, of orchestrating political action from top to bottom around the world in order to make some seemingly quite fundamental changes to economic, social and political development in such a way as to, as to steer, <laughs> govern, steer the world to some, in this case, numerical outcome. I mean, that's a project that has never previously certainly been secured, e even if attempted, uh, uh, I, would, I would argue. S so in, in a sense, this whole machinery that's been created is experimental yeah. and it's proving to be a very difficult experiment to bring to a closure. And it, it may very well never reach closure, or at least not closure in the sense that some of the campaigners or the rhetorics of a safe landing would like to see. And there are different reactions to that prospect. One is to despair and give up. Another is to short circuit that process, again, either by the intervention from you know, uh, the scientific rationalist, who, as it were, will just cut through uh, all of that difficult politics and interest conflict. Uh, or a, a power grab, I mean, in a literal sense, actually, one uh, could, and, and actually I do sometimes wonder where the rhetoric of deadlines might end up, even in traditionally liberal democracies, that actually, if powerful campaigners and activists and social movements feel that there is no future in deliberative democracy, then we may see something darker emerge even here. So that is a another scenario. Another the other scenario to this is to say, well, we just keep on going. You know, the experiment will just keep on going, and it may go round in circles for a bit. On the other hand, there may be from time to time, you know, certain movements like a bit of like a ratchet that take us one step forward but actually in the end the experiment is an open-ended experiment which we've got no idea where it ends but we are committed to the experiment because we're committed to that type of open democratic deliberative process um, so there are different there are different scenarios you could paint a, a, about this whole process um, but I, I do fear the use of what we you know could call, could call you know scientific absolutism or um, scientific rationalism that says uh, well we have to deliver this at all costs and all costs means mm -hmm. an authoritarian regime 
And, and here, I mean, I know we're not talking about the pandemic and the governance of pandemics, but actually one can begin to see some crossovers yeah. here between the ways in which governments have thought about pandemics mm. and the ways in which powers have been centralized in the name of an, an epidemiological model or a particular advisory group uh, or a particular stated absolute goal that we must get in, um, incidence rates below a certain threshold, whatever. Um, and so I, I think we can see some of the same potential dynamics uh, uh, as undercurrents or undertones within the climate mm. discourse. Um, I mean, I mean there, it's interesting you say that. I know there, are, there, are, there have been some people who've made reference to the, the potentially the climate lockdowns in the way that there have been in terms of, of the, the response to the pandemic. Mm. Um, but I was, what I was going to ask you was... I mean, one argument that people would, I guess, would put forward to the reason that, you know, we've never embarked on anything like this before is that the world hasn't perceived there to be a problem like climate change before. Now, in your view, you know, you, you go with the idea that climate change is a, is a wicked problem, is this multidimensional type problem. Are there examples of other sort of wicked problems that you think have been addressed in this um, predicament or open-ended type way of viewing something that we might be able to learn from in the context of, of climate change. You know, what other mm. wicked problems or problems that have got the characteristics of wickedness are out there that we've seen some of the sort of things that you, you would like to emphasize? Yeah. Um, perhaps easier to point the other direction. <laughs> I mean, one or two problems that would, would perceive to be tame, as yeah. it were, and actually, this is and that are wicked. Uh, well, that are wicked, or actually are relatively tame. Right. I mean, actually, yeah. the the ozone issue is yeah. often held out as, yeah. as as partly inspiring the 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 objectives and the emergence of a global climate regime, but actually an, an inappropriate inspiration mm -hmm. because the ozone issue was actually quite a tame issue. Yeah, it was one family of of, of chemicals. Produced by a very small number of industrial companies that mm -hmm. had a very deleterious effect on the ozone layer, and in a sense, it, you know the, the 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 interests involved here, the the, the degrees of freedom were, were were orders of magnitude fewer than they are with climate change, mm -hmm. and so we set up a machinery that was reasonably effective at dealing with the, the tame problem of ozone depletion, and we thought, right, this is the way in which we can solve climate change. Absolutely not, because you cannot just import one architecture into a wicked problem. Um, are there other wicked issues? I mean, there are wicked issues in the world. Poverty would, mm. would be one, um, I think. And, you know, however you want to look at poverty, <laughs> you know, poverty has, since the earliest, well, I don't know how far back you'd rather go in recorded history, but certainly some of the earliest religious texts Certainly, in my tradition of you know Christianity, we'll talk about poverty, and actually, you know, we'll say the poor will always be with you. So this is a wicked problem that has not gone away in two thousand years or longer. Um, the more concentrated efforts to eradicate poverty after the Second World War have had some benefits, but also some disbenefits. Um, but poverty is certainly a scourge that continues, whether it's absolute poverty or relative poverty. So we could see poverty as a wicked issue, um, but that's not again to give up on finding ways in which we can make incremental progress towards what we see as a desirable condition, i.e., the ending of poverty. Knowing that we will never get there, yeah. but there are still incremental interventions that we can make, but not on the scale of some big or orchestrated, top-down uh, set of rules or procedures that it's just unrealistic to think that, well, we could take population, I, I, maybe as another wicked issue, certainly, certainly natures and cultures have got very different attitudes towards population management. You know, we can go back and think about sterilization, forced sterilization in India or imposed regulation of one-child families in China. Or we can think of a more open set of policies that 
for example, indirectly deal with this through female emancipation and education. Um, are we ever going to be able to control global population in the sense of we're trying to control global temperature? I don't think so. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure there are any, I mean, there are examples of wicked issues, but no examples of wicked issues that have been turned into tame issues. Hmm. Although that's an interesting thought. Could you turn a wicked is into issue into hmm. a tame issue? I'm not sure. <laughs> So, um, what is next for you, Mike? So you've you've had this new book out on on climate change, which is bringing a lot of these ideas together. Um, where do you intend to take this next in the in the sort of next stage of your writing? Have you got sort of plans for new projects that take these ideas forward, or how's it how's it going to evolve? Yes, well, I I I've got a couple of projects. One fairly advanced now, which is recognizing the significance of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as a way of orchestrating scientific knowledge and crafting it in ways that are engaged with by political actors. The IPCC has become a, cr a crucially important institution, powerful institution, both for its orchestration of science, but also the way in which it shaped the politics of climate change. So. We're actually with a colleague uh, working on an edited collection of short essays from critical social scientists and STS scholars, bringing together everything that we have understood about how the IPCC operates. Mm. So it's a, we call it a critical assessment of the IPCC um, because, because we think that's important because people don't fully understand really how the IPCC operates and what sort of knowledge it produces. So that's a project reaching, beginning to reach con conclusion. Uh, and I think the other line, I mean, this may, this may or may not materialize, but I, I, I want to make a, a, a I want to write a further uh, book that makes a, a, a rather short and more punchy uh, contribution, I think. The, the book Climate Change, Key Ideas and Geography provides a synoptic map, certainly from my perspective, but a synoptic map of how the idea of climate change has emerged and its historical and cultural and epistemic uh, attachments to it. But I want to write a book that I'm provisionally calling Climatism, which is trying to draw attention in, in a much more succinct way to the lines of thought that have allowed us to put controlling climate as the overarching number one political objective of planetary life. And I'm skeptical of that move. And I use the idea of climatism deliberately to, to attach it with ideological thought and uh, influence, because I do think there are some darker sides to what I call climatism. Uh, so that's that's there in the in the medium term, I think, for next year. So it, is the idea there how you can get sort of different ideologies to? I mean, I guess following on from the cultural theory to sort of get a, a mix of ideologies instead of there being a single view. Um, is is that the idea that's behind that that theme, or, or the in, the insistence that climate ought to be viewed in one way rather than perhaps in multiple ways? Is that? I, I think it's more to dislodge the assumption, either explicit or implicit, that 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 the issue should be central. The climate and controlling climate sits at the heart of contemporary mm -hmm. politics. I wrote a piece a few or a decade ago now called um, that about climate reductionism, which it was about reducing the future to climate as though the only thing that's going to be shaping how the world is in 50 years time is going to be climate. And, 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 and that was very widely read, the idea of climate reductionism. In a sense, climatism is drawing attention to the present and it's actually saying that we're collapsing politics in the present to this one single issue of climate. Yeah. And that carried some dangers with it. I understand the reasons why that's happened, but by doing that, we may do, be doing so at a cost, not a, about 50 years time, but actually a cost today to the nature of the political project 
And as I, I think mentioned previously, the very idea that actually democracy, liberal democracy, is a form of social organization that we should continue to invest in. Mm -hmm. And there are some threats, not just on the horizon. I mean, one or two of these threats are a little bit coming close to the home. I think we've seen in recent years uh, the rise of populism, both of the left and of the right varieties. Uh, and I feel that climatism, as it were, needs to be called out mm. as a particular ideology that, that, that has a darker side, a potentially darker side to it. I mean, I guess just to finish off on that, I mean, do you see the danger there in being in terms of populist movements sort of reacting to what is coming from this climatist agenda in the sense that groups that feel that it's, it's not being delivered in the way they, they see it can use that as a justification for attacking existing structures. And likewise, groups that interpret it in a different way um, could be could be attacking those institutions as well. So you kind of have a civil war almost. That's rather dramatic language, perhaps, but focused on these sort of con completely opposing reactions to this issue. When you know, from everything I've I've read of your work, it, it suggests we need a mixture of nuanced kind of res responses to this to this problem. Yeah, I think I think it can come from both both angles. Um, you know, and the danger is the erosion of what I would see as some of the the, the central institutions of, of, of liberal democracies. Mm. And actually, there's an even more insidious prospect I could 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 argue for, which is, and we you know we've seen we've seen this a little bit in some of the the, the climate youth movements it, that the the growing cynicism that they would appear to have about certain political processes and institutions and venues mm. actually can be used as a Trojan horse by those on the political right mm. in order to say, well, we told you so. Mm. You know, your elites have let you down. Mm. Uh, and actually, we know, again, through political history, that strange as it is, it's sometimes it's easier to move from the political, the extreme political left to the extreme political mm. right without going through the middle. <laughs> There yeah. are back doors, actually, yeah. that some, somehow quite quickly one can move from one extreme mm. to another. And if we perpetuate this notion that somehow democracy has failed us on climate change, we're opening the door to actors who may have more sinister and nefarious intent. People who didn't believe in democracy in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, on that rather provocative note, thank you very much, Mike, for joining us today on the Governance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.